Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. Something I'm starting to realize now that I'm in the the professor role, I am now the teacher, um, which has been already interesting in planning my outfits, as I mentioned before, of like how I want to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I started noticing, no matter what boots I wear, whether it's my RM Williams or my new Iron Rangers, I am still mm-hmm. very short. <laughs> and <laughs> I want to make it clear, I am I am five eight or five nine. I don't actually know, but it's one of those. So when I was standing around lecturing because I don't want to sit and I like to walk around and look at all my students' drawings as they're doing stuff, I slowly realized that many of them are taller than me, which Mm -hmm. is fine. But then I realized that like I was dressed in corduroys, gray corduroys, and a gray cardigan with a black turtleneck, like a half turtleneck. And I was like, oh, I look like the guy from Up. Like I genuinely look like like the old man, (laughs) and I'm kind of into it. Like I'm like, this is fine. Like this is I genuinely think of myself as a 50 year old man at times or 12. There's no in between. So I think that that was kind of the vibe I'm going for. Is like old art teacher, but also everybody towers over them. I actually saw a guy trying to start a conspiracy the other day on TikTok about how Danny DeVito is actually average height. <laughs> that's such a good i can get behind that he that's... had he had these doctored photos and you're just like for a second you you before you realize the joke you're you're like thinking about it you're like is this is this like one of those is this like a reverse robert downey jr right, where right hollywood work hollywood works so hard to convince us that uh robert downey jr tom cruise are uh average to at least taller than their female co-stars yeah yeah you know and they they have to wear like block shoes yeah wow yeah uh i mean it's interesting because you know you're taller than me so how right, do I, I yeah so, so how do how do you think i feel <laughs> I, mean, I was gonna say yeah <laughs> I, these students though they're too tall there's something in the water something in the water all these young kids getting real real tall it's Mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. pretty wild but yeah i mean you're not that much shorter than me though zan i guess so but um i don't know it's uh yeah i think it would be one of those things like back when we when we used to live together like every now and then it would occur to me that you were the tall one dude okay i need to say something about that because this is a very <laughs> bizarre thing for me every single all of my friends, especially all of my guy friends throughout college, were always taller than me. Always. Uh-huh. And my first roommates in Italy were taller than me, so I was the short one. And I was also the youngest, <laughs> which is funny. And all of a sudden, I was the youngest, but then the tallest in our friend group. And I was like, right. this is weird. Like, something... Right. I'm not comfortable yeah. with this power shift. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's very interesting. I mean, yeah. the... 
I I feel like I'm 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 very often the one of the the short people. Uh I I was very uh but I I think I had come to terms with being 57 or whatever. Right. And I I think I, you know, I I I proudly tell them at the DMV when I renew my license, you know, I'm 57. Of course. And Allison recently has been challenging that, um, <laughs> claiming that she is 5'7", so, and that I must be shorter than that because she is slightly taller than me. Mmm, okay. Yeah. You're in the discrepancy yeah. like I am. where I See, because I don't go to the DMV confident. I go to the DMV and they say, <laughs> how tall are you? And I say, I don't actually know. It's either 5'8 or 5'9, mark whichever one you want. Which mm-hmm. is never a good thing to do because I got lucky mm-hmm. last time I did that. <laughs> they had a sense of humor, but uh, it yeah, I guess you got to get like a a like a measuring tape out and really I guess see. But, but you know, I I feel like I can I can add a little bit to it because I wear I wear like uh you know boots with a with a block heel Usually for sure gives yeah me two extra inches and. You know, also people do hear me coming. You know, they'll they'll hear the clop clop and stuff. Power boots, I, man. I want, yeah, I, I'm I'm a bootman. But you know, I I have I have to wonder how I'm perceived if people are uh are if it if it is apparent to me that other people are taller that is it as apparent that I am shorter? I guess it's all it's all about pers- uh, you know. It's all it about perspective. Per- perspective and perception, you know. Mm, yes, <laughs> which, which, yes. Which kind of which kind of brings us uh, to what we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. It's it is all about as as we know. It's all about perspective and perception. Mm. Keep and, it all in perspective. Oh man, that's the tagline right there. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Zan, you recently showed me this documentary, um, which is called the. <laughs> which i think is it's a great title because it's just straight up called david hockney's secret knowledge which is very david, david hockney's secret knowledge sounds like a a a book that's maybe trying to sell you on like the power of positive thinking it is or like cryptocurrency or like how to get rich fast um <laughs> but it does like if i were in a bookstore and i saw like David Hockney's secret knowledge, and I didn't know who David Hockney is, I would be mm-hmm. very intrigued and afraid, I have to yes. say. Yes, yes. It does sound like, you know, he might try to sell you some nutritional supplements. Right, right. But he's mm-hmm. just trying to sell you on some new perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a screening of this going on at the UCM currently. It's also available on YouTube for free, both parts one and two. So I highly recommend yes. watching it either Mm -hmm. after our tour or i guess if you want to go watch it now but that'd be kind of awkward um Mm -hmm. so yeah we'll wait we'll wait all day (laughs) (laughs) we get paid by the hour it's fine but it's it's incredibly fascinating and it's something i wish i was shown because i think it Mm -hmm. when did it come out is it like the 2000s or the 90s it feels like it's the 90s so it came out in 2001 okay Um, yeah you know maybe uh Actually, uh, m- maybe we got a little distracted in 2001 to really uh, relish in this amazing discovery of um, yeah, yeah, that's... of 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 re- of, re- of really rediscovering a 
technology that uh that fueled so much classical painting mm-hmm. uh in 2001 yes. right uh, you know our a, a lot of our priorities got um uh-huh. got yeah. got a little shifted there yeah is it bad that whenever i hear 2001 i immediately want to follow up with the space odyssey mm. like every time um so maybe <laughs> that's an impulse I'll have to just make sure I don't do because I was you were like oh yeah we got distracted in 2001 I was like yeah when we went on that space odyssey <laughs> oh god <laughs> um I mean well that that's always all the fun about um old sci-fi that like set stuff in like the very <laughs> early 2000s or the yeah, 90s they weren't you know? thinking too like, far yeah, yeah, and it's like completely futuristic or post-apocalyptic world, and it's like the far distant future of 1995. Yeah, and it's like, uh, okay, wow. I yeah, like the Apple, uh, the the science, I guess science fiction fantasy musical. Oh yeah. Uh, uh. yeah, the Apple I think takes place in ninety. It's supposed to take place in the early nineties. Oh, like nineteen ninety one. Like <laughs> okay, they didn't. And they weren't being thinking far made enough. Made in the seventies. That is, oh my god, that's weird. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll never yeah. understand that. But yeah, so essentially, yeah, the documentary in two thousand and one is essentially following David Hockney, who, if you don't know who that is, is a British artist, a fine artist, the I most put, British artist. His accent is so cool. I have to say, and listening to him talk is kind of awesome. It is like because he's not Scottish; he's like Northern English from like York, I think, or something. Would if you, I'm basing would, it on would you say is is, the, is that a Geordie accent or no? He's like it's that Northern England accent because it's so he's he's from Bradford, which is a city in England, and it's near like it's it's in mm-hmm. the county of West Yorkshire. But mm-hmm. that's that's why I'm thinking for the accent. He's he's got that York accent which is on the border between um iverness like where scotland is because they it's like john it's like the john snow like very like deep english accent i i don't know i guess i don't know what geordie means to be fair (laughs) geordie was um that's that's also kind of a north it's i think that is considered a different region but that is also a northern uh okay accent we did have a professor at Saatchi who uh, was uh, was was he from Yorkshire? Uh, John Taylor was he a sculptor? Yeah, so. I don't... yeah, because oh. well, because you, you that guy once went on um, a like started talking for like an hour uh, <laughs> about his mother's uh, Yorkshire pudding, mm. and was just talking about. Why, those my my grand my but then my grandmother's pudding in comparison you know just oh my going god on it's... and on it's like aren't we this is a sculpture class <laughs> right why are we talking about this John? right right oh i mean i, I just i i i lived for how dry he was about everything you know yeah. just like him showing us uh you know his slideshows and stuff and being like and this is me sculpting anatomy of an angel for Damien Hirst. I'm not supposed to show you this picture. Whoops. 
<laughs> it sounds like an audiobook, and I kind of love it, and I'm here for it. What a, he's a good guy. Um, yes. But, it, but it, yes, David, David Hockney. Yeah, so he's essentially in that kind of a similar narration talking about mm-hmm. his recent discovery, which I guess in summary is wondering why there's a jump in quality in 1400s, I guess that'd be early Renaissance paintings, from earlier ones, right? Late, late medieval. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is a really interesting question that he that he basically starts the whole thing with. You know, right. why you know while medieval, uh, you know, painting is is very beautiful in a lot of its own ways. Why is there suddenly this jump in? the ability to figuratively recreate the experience of the eye yeah in, in painting in europe you know this we, we've talked about this before you know that figurative painting is is not uh unique to europe but right. one of the quintessential things of european artwork is a recreation of uh of the experience of the eye right and there is a noticeable thing that happens where suddenly there is so much more of a priority to um represent those uh those things as they would be in life Mm. in in uh in european painting so what exactly happens you know and he teases it at the beginning and then basically takes you on a whole uh you know ba- basically showing the highlight reels of his vacation around <laughs> yeah right like he was just like oh yeah and we then we, we, we took a plane and went to florence and then i went to bruges and then i went to ghent and it's like <laughs> okay this is fine i'm not jealous or anything no. i do like that he very bluntly puts out there that the main the uh, the theory that was before this that he, mm-hmm. that he's going to pose is how they just all these artists just got they essentially just got good they got better, better. yeah and yeah. it's like and then he's like which is ridiculous as even an idea that that's like mm-hmm. oh we don't actually know so they all just got very talented very quickly and mm-hmm. uh yeah we'll skim over it and it was like i kind of just like his candor on that i think it's very funny oh yeah but also he brings up a lot about even the discussion of images which i think mm-hmm. is really relevant in terms of this what he's posing of of how they affect us of what we're seeing how we mm-hmm. read that and also even just like in contemporary times today with now that we have moving images that are popular and we look at our phones yeah. all the time and we receive our information visually mm-hmm. so I, I think there's a lot of common threads here between the past and also yeah. the present yeah i mean both him and john berger seem to be coming out of that same cloth of uh you know, British art historians that really want to look at what, how, how our relationship uh, to images has changed when there is an expectation of those images being uh, more quote unquote realistic. Right. Yeah. You know, what, what, what does, what does that mean? Why did that change our relationship to, uh, to images? And I think to some extent, uh there's an idea that if this is something that we can perfectly translate into the experience of the eye 
and recreate visual experience in a realistic way, then that is in some way making the story of the painting real and making Mm. the message real and manifested because it is something that you could feasibly see. Right, yeah. So basically what Hockney gets uh, into is the invention of the camera obscura, which most people have heard of it in in a couple of different terms, uh, but mostly it's when we talk about the earliest version of a camera, right? Yeah. Um, and w- what's interesting is the evolution of the invention of the camera actually does kind of follow just the evolution of the eye in animals. Um, that you know. When when we think of the development of the camera, we think of, you know, some sort of light-sensitive paper that can change in response to sunlight, um, and then you have uh, that uh, type of paper put into a dark box with a hole in it. Now you've got a pinhole camera, uh, and there are animals still alive today, like nautilisks, that that is their eye. They have basically pinhole cameras for eyes uh you know what yeah yeah like the they basically have a little cavity and in the back of that are photosensitive cells and their their pupil is just basically a hole and you know that's letting light in and reflect on the back of that uh that uh photosensitive surface that's cool that yeah And, and then and then we get lenses which our eyes have. Right. So, you know, you can you can track that and you can see that you can you can start to understand like how the how the development of of a camera started to work that you know, you basically needed a a, a box that blocked out most of the light and then some way to control how much light was coming in uh and then getting a lens and you would be able to recreate uh sort of a reflection of an image uh and then eventually being able to capture that mm. um with uh with chemicals and paper now what's what what's interesting is that we think of this just kind of in terms of the development of the camera and i feel like the rhetoric has always been um whether you kind of uh agree with with the um the pessimist view of this or not but were you also kind of always under the impression that painting got less representational once cameras came around uh and mm. that there was no longer this need for uh paintings to to do the work of representing and recreating a scene i would say yeah yeah i would say so but i also suddenly there was this much faster much more economical industrial way of right uh of of making an image yeah i mean that's how it's taught to be fair in a sense I, i think in a very like narrative driven way we look at the development of the image through art as peaking with the photograph as 
basically having a way to document things that happen in our reality. So we don't need etchings and we don't need yes. paintings and we don't need lithographs anymore because that takes a lot of time. Um, mm-hmm. Which it's so interesting when you start interrogating that because you slowly realize that's not how any of this works <laughs> and not how we at, at all. And like this is another fascination too that I've slowly been having as well as being open to that like even just the way we're taught history is very, not to be punny, but painted with these type of like ways of seeing <laughs> things. I know I couldn't help myself, uh-huh, uh-huh. but like in a sense of everything has to be a narrative. Everything has to be leading to this end goal. Like, Oh, we had the typewriter and now we have a keyboard, which links us to the computer. And then we had this, which gives us here, which does that. And it like, it does. There is this, right? Like uh, uh, this is track of technology, but it leads to this idea that we peak, like we are the peak form of civilization, which again, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. is not always the way to look at things because, mm-hmm. you know, there's ancient civilizations that have had many other further developments than it took us to get in a sense. Yeah. The, uh, th- this, this really kind of puts a challenge to that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that the camera evolved uh and you know suddenly it was there right and replaced painting really within you know less than a century you know as yeah. as sort of the as as a document as as any way of documenting things you know and you know we're all aware that that the day that they realized they could doctor photos was like the day after they invented photography, you know, (laughs) that the photos are not the end all be all representation of truth, but we do, uh, realize that, uh, their photos provide a certain objectivity to documentation that paintings, uh, we we never really thought about. So, Hmm. Um, it, in terms of like the technology that would have been available to someone in say the 15th century, um, Hockney demonstrates uh, a couple of different things. One is basically getting a dark room, having a small opening, letting light in, uh, and then basically in that small opening, having a little lens. It kind of starts to look like that uh, scene in. Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you know Indy has the uh, the little uh, the, the little artifact, and you know right, has to right. shine the light. Yes, but Hockney demonstrates that you know this was the camera obscura, and this is what we think of as the camera obscura. Um, you know, in in terms of art history, is you know the lens, the dark room, this whole kind of very elaborate setup, and one of the things that he acknowledges the challenge to this is um you know where is the equipment for this you know because none of it seems to have survived um and also was the lens was the glass and lens making technology really that sophisticated back then that this is something that could have been produced Mm. and hockney sort of uh his explanation for this is kind of two different ideas. One is that, um, you know, this stuff seems to be a very closely guarded secret for much of its history. Um, right. Because what these artists were doing, it seems, was using the camera obscura to project 
um, an inverted image of something happening in bright sunlight. Hockney goes into great detail about how all of in all of these beautiful illustrative paintings from the 14 and 1500s uh really seem to be glimmering in the sun mm. uh, even if they are things that are supposed to be of an indoor scene in the painting you know the 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 subject's pupils are dilated the knight's armor is shining as if standing uh in the sun um so the it, it really does uh you know point to these these guys being in bright light in a time before spotlights and a time before electric lighting they had to have been outside so right. you're you can start to imagine the scene now the other thing that that he puts forward is that this did not necessarily have to be done with anything as sophisticated as a lens and the in really one of the most incredible things I think I've seen in a while, and this is where this really took the the documentary, where, where this took my knowledge of art history and really took it further, because I had been told by art history professors, I mean, even teachers since high school, about how the camera obscura was... Uh, you know, used by Vermeer and all of these artists, but nobody really explained how. To then see with super simple technology, with a small mirror, that's all he, that's all Hockney has, a small mirror to be able to project um, an image onto the wall, you suddenly realize, oh, people 600 years ago knew how to do this yeah you can suddenly make the leap in your mind and you realize this is a technique you you are seeing through time you are seeing what they saw hundreds of years ago uh yeah. and that is what is really incredible like i have never really um seen the camera obscura demonstrated in such a practical way that didn't make it sound like this incredibly <laughs> elaborate setup that this was something so simple and used so little material really that you almost you understand why artists kind of kept it a secret it it was part of almost the magic of their craft yeah and i mean he also kind of explains a bit of the theory behind behind why they would keep it a secret also just because it's like a competition in terms of who right. is going to make the big purchase who's going to make the better one and and i mean i could see that being mm -hmm. a part of it but i could also see you know i i also don't know how much of an open conversation art is either if you're not just mm -hmm. another artist or someone who's a patron right so you might not right it's almost like this is my trade like look how good i can do this yeah. this is my this is the secret sauce literally to getting this perfect <laughs> metaphorical art sandwich i guess but like and it's it's honestly incredible i jumped out of my chair li literally when i saw this it blew my mind and i was you like spit out your tea yeah i did i was drinking tea during it so <laughs> Hi there, my name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account, while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. 
You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. I mean, but it was like, because it's just so, it's so straightforward. You're like, oh my God, it makes perfect sense. Everything makes sense. Why did Uh I not, uh why didn't we think of that? Like, why do we not know this? Why is it not talked about, you know, like the fact, and I mean, I I guess it's also just overlooked in a sense of like, we don't, you know, Uh it's like when you find out that Michelangelo had assistants sketching things for him as well as himself Uh sketching Uh things on paper and then putting it on the ceiling, not just going, you know, not just improv yeah. on the Sistine Chapel. It's like, it, yeah, there's a I plan. Mean, it, it's, it's interesting. It's like stuff like this happens a lot in archaeology where all you have to be is just, you know, slightly unfamiliar with something. And, uh, you know, if you are and, and that that you might not uh, even recognize it, even if it's something that still yeah. persists to this day, there's lots of instances of um people finding things uh, buried in ancient ruins and they're not sure what they're for. And then sure enough, you know, they run into someone who's like, oh, that's like this special comb that, you know, these, the, you know, all these ladies know how to use, but, you know, uh, no, you you wouldn't make the connection immediately. Right. Like, oh, this is meant for a comb, you know? Right, right. It, it, there, there's all kinds of stuff like that. I, I think of this great um, demonstration that uh, a a professor of mine did in undergrad where he passed out things, just random objects to different people in the classroom and wanted to demonstrate the power of collective thought. Hmm. And, you know, we were all looking at our items and you know, trying to, with with our own backgrounds, trying to determine without looking them up, you know, what were these things? And uh, a girl behind me had what was obvious to me as a lightning whelk, because, you know, I grew up in Florida and lightning whelks are just everywhere on the beach. You see their shells all the time. And I'm Mm -hmm. just like, I look at it and she had been, you know, looking and looking and looking, trying to figure out what the shell was. And I'm like, I just looked at it. And I'm like, it's a lightning whelk. Huh. Uh, and, you know, then my object, I knew it was like a little collapsible tin cup, but it had a symbol on it that I didn't recognize. And a guy behind me was like, that's the Boy Scouts. Oh. Uh, and I'm like, this is really cool. Like, you, p- people are capable of kind of doing this, this group collaboration of of figuring out very easy practical solutions to problems if you give them yeah. the ability to do so that's so fascinating. so yeah and you can start to understand how you know uh painters and learned people back then could have figured this out now one of the things that hockney gets into is now what did the artists say they were doing um, and, right. you know, one of the things was, you know, oh, well, you know, the artists say that they held up a grid to what they were painting from. And Hockney demonstrates it's actually incredibly difficult. Yeah. And seems very unlikely that they would have actually used this to uh, to paint these super complicated scenes with so much precision. You're telling me that all those grids we had to do in art one in high school was actually a lie. There, there's a reason all of those drawings look terrible. I hated. I knew I hated that for a valid reason. I was. I hate. 
I loathe grid paintings like that. They make no sense. Mm-hmm. It, it, it literally mm-hmm. will distort your image. And that's a great effect if yeah. you're looking for it. It doesn't, because I know, like, in the, it, he, he goes on to say too about how, like, with, with, I think it was like Vermeer's chandelier, right? Like, it was impossible to mathematically make a, a, a linear perspective drawing of it the way that but they were doing that, it. That's the thing that they always talk about. Everyone is always like, they like have to just jerk off all of the Renaissance masters about how they were so good at math. That's how they were able to do all of these things. <laughs> what a lie. And it's like, yeah, it's like, no, they had projectors. Yeah, literally. They just looked at, they used optics to their advantage. It's literally, it's kind of contemporary in that way if you think about yeah. it right it's use or, it, it's it's really demystifying it yeah and it makes it also a lot like in a way the thing i love about this is it makes you breathe a bit and it's like yeah oh they also need assistance because that doesn't mean it's yes. like this isn't the practical way to do this maybe and that doesn't also make it that it's like cheating right it's it's that yeah. you're using optics it's all about perception right, it's right. all about seeing yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the really magnificent things here is how mm-hmm. it's just so, I mean, because it, it it has to be one of these like accidental moments of like one is holding up a mirror and sunlight hits it at the right angle and it, and it makes an image, a very, very slight image, I imagine, mm-hmm. in the corner of a room. And I mean, I have this happen with my glasses uh, because I see mm-hmm. images in this corner of my glasses because of how light refracts in them and it's... Mm-hmm. It, it is really fascinating. You know, you just kind of get yeah. yourself caught up and you're like, oh, it's really cool. Because you forget how, like, light quite literally shapes everything we see in our entire yeah. existence. And to, mm-hmm. you know, we think about that now in relation to the camera, and it's a very different relationship I feel like we have with it. But if you're thinking about it 600 mm-hmm. years ago, it's like, wow. I, that It feels like it, sh- it... In a way, I feel like we time travel through the story because it simplifies a lot and demystifies as you said a lot of things that we originally were like no they you know they had to use a grid and perspective and we had to map everything out and use the golden ratio to do everything and it's like yeah a little (laughs) bit not all of it though i mean yeah yeah no no i mean because it's 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 you know being a little dismissive to say that you know (laughs) these guys did not know their stuff when it came to um painting and drawing uh you know that they they did think a lot about proportion they did think a lot about anatomy and stuff but when you get down to it a lot of these complex shapes and stuff that they were uh drawing when you do realize that they they were using this as a tool just like anything else right. you know but you know we can kind of let's let's you know ask kind of the dirty question of you know, and, and were are are does does this diminish any of our idea of their artistic ability because they used this this tool? Like they're they're just technical right. draftsman skills. Uh, you know, not not even yeah. you know their their qualities as an artist because they certainly transformed what they were working with, and they certainly um made memorable things that transcend time so yeah but what are what are we to make of their draftsman skills i mean 
I think it's still incredible regardless, right? Yeah. It's this mm-hmm. it's using yeah. technology available to you to figure out a mm-hmm. solution and a way of creating something out of nothing, right? Yeah. Like that I think is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I could very mm-hmm. well see scenarios where this gets taken to then say that they are either untalented or actually it's not that impressive anymore. Frauds. Yeah, right? Like, it's like someone would (laughs) would very much get upset by this. There are definitely people out there, I feel like, that are in that canon of how they look at art. Yeah. And I mean, whatever, right? Like, I guess. But to me... Well, well, like, what's what's your reaction Mm -hmm. when people are, like... When when people use projection to trace Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. for their own work? Because, obviously, you know again there's there's nothing wrong with any one thing or something but tracing tracing still has a connotation to it that it is um uh that if you do not do something else to it if you just have a trace a trace is so far below uh, an observational yeah. sketch, it's you true. know, that yeah. there is a uh, rigidity to it, there is a lack of expression, you know, tracing, to to accuse someone of tracing uh, in the art world, uh, or at least in your art education, is like a very dirty thing to throw at somebody. Yes, well, I've experienced this a lot actually mm-hmm. um in undergrad yeah. specifically uh and mm-hmm. i think i'm gonna come at this for two sides because i have two kind of mm-hmm. perspectives to share on it because one was a recent right. conversation I, I maybe not that recent but a few months ago with with friends about this uh we were talking about mm-hmm. this one artist that i guess we saw on tiktok who was he was using a projector to trace like other jpegs and images of like i guess like mm-hmm. bones and skulls and things but like in a more cartoonish fashion and okay. collaging it together to make this really interesting, like, ink drawing. And we were having mm-hmm. this back and forth d- d- debate about it, not in a, an aggressive way, honestly, just this really interesting conversation. And I was putting mm-hmm. forth that I think, you know, there's nothing wrong necessarily with collaging images and using different... Because like, cause I should specify what they were doing was, like, they would work on their composition of the sketch and they would move one drawing and place it there and then they would find a new mm-hmm. image, move the projection and put it on the other mm-hmm. part of the drawing and so on. Like, basically making a puzzle out of what they found and Uh it was kind of interesting i mean it was the art good i don't know but personally i don't i didn't (laughs) care but just to me because it wasn't substantial enough i wasn't really interested but it was inch you know it was kind of cool the way they did it and the ink was nice Mm -hmm. so that to me is not really tracing them because you're just using a reference and getting Mm -hmm. the job done faster you don't have Mm -hmm. to prove to people that you know how to draw I had never understood right. that, that we don't have to necessarily sit here and be like, well, I rendered this thing out for 40 hours, so I know I'm a better drawer than you. And it's like, well, I just, you know, you could, like, let's let's take two examples of someone drawing a house, right? One could sit mm-hmm. outside and draw that house the whole day to get it right, pushing and, and moving, um, you know, their, their proportions to get it perfect, and then another can take the photo image, you know, get the basic sketch of where the proportions are and then render from that and get it done in yeah. half the time. And I mean, both are equally valid options. It depends on what you're trying to do. They're not necessarily better mm-hmm. than one or the other. Where tracing mm-hmm. becomes a problem artistically as well as then 
in like an illustration setting is if you quite literally make a copy. Which takes a lot of skill. Mm. I'm gonna be honest. That takes a lot of skill. <laughs> I there has there is tea at my undergrad school of someone that did that. They copied all of their illustrations. Oh, oh it's bad. It was really really bad. They Whoa. they copied a lot of their illustrations and got in some heat for Whoa. it. But like, like did they try to do it from like an obscure artist and like hoping no one would ever find that or like what happened? So I mean, I guess it's fine. I can probably talk about it. They copied from a, like, it was, I think it was a biomedical illustration thing. And they were mm. copying from other biomed references, like, on the internet. And even okay. from the books, which is weird. So mm. they would take, like, the poses and everything and just carefully render out, with color pencil, all of the muscles. And they eventually, I think, like, the okay. pe like people in the class found out and were like, whoa, what? Yeah. Like... This isn't yours. Yeah. You just completely traced all of this because, like, mm -hmm. like verbatim, like literally all of it identical. And I think yeah. about this a lot because it was pretty bad, you know, in a sense of like, mm -hmm. yeah, that was not at the assignment, and you cannot do that professionally. Yeah. That's not okay. But I think about it, and I'm mm -hmm. like, that takes a lot of skill to really pull off, like to really trace it, does, it to all some, it to, some degree, to some extent to some extent for I mean, sure but if you're if you're if you're paleon if you're the uh the 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 youtuber that made that paleontologizing video you know you do really want to hide a little bit more you know when you uh trace kate mckinnon's face onto you <laughs> right. know, a, a busty stewardess's right. body for your right. very specific fantasy <laughs> yeah um, but this was like it was just I, I don't think what they did was good necessarily at all, personally. I think it was like, it's a bad mm -hmm. way to go about drawing. But I think yeah. tracing does have this bad connotation to it, unless it's like for a conceptual purpose, right? But I also think yes. you, the problem I have with it mm -hmm. is you rob yourself from a lot of the movements and gestures that are going to be present in the work you're trying to show. I kind of think yeah. about it like if I was performing a, a musical piece on piano and I mm -hmm. memorized it and I did it in the training and I got it right on the first try or second try or whatever, recording it yeah. live versus putting all of them into piano roll, painfully taking the time to do that and making it sound not yeah. robotic, which both gets you the same option, but it's easier to just do it right in a sense of just do it Certainly. the other way. I, I mean, that that's one of the things that people talk about a lot with covers, you know, yeah. like, that it is incredibly boring to hear you cover a song note for note when, when you know, it's, it's like one of those things, like th there's a lot of artists that people are obsessed with, um copying their playing style so precisely mm. um yep. and you know they'll be like this is exactly how to play the solo the guitar solo to this one song uh, yeah but the thing is all of those things that a lot of the things that they're really obsessed with were probably just improvised by the artist in that exact moment yeah exactly and that's that that's that's the thing to really take away is like there's a there may be a melody or something but there's all of these other little tiny things along the way that people will obsess about but those things aren't really that important it's just that there are these moments of 
expression that go beyond just the core structure. And I think that's kind of how we have to look at tracing as a tool. I think, like, because I'm imagining for my own practice where for my drawings or my paintings, I... And maybe this is just my own uh, inability to do (laughs) contour drawings uh, well, but I really rely on building shadows first Hmm. uh, before I can do anything else uh, for an image. We are totally the opposite. Uh, That's really funny. (laughs) I I rely on line too heavily. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, like, I'm just... For me, I just... I know... This is why I was so averse to drawing for a long time, because I knew I couldn't get the lines right. I mm. would obsess with trying to get this perfect outline, and then if it's a little bit off, it throws off the rest of your drawing when you right. go in to shade it. So the only way I've been able to force myself to like learn, relearn to draw in a way that you know satisfies me is always like starting everything with the shadows and building the image from there um Hmm, makes sense and 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 breaking everything down into shapes and i'm imagining like in a lot of ways that's probably what these guys were doing um for these projections they especially if you look at vermeer's work oh yeah and you Mm -hmm. could imagine vermeer doing this like just basically stippling with the tip of a brush in the shapes of those beautiful beautiful shadows um you know you can start to kind of you you start to realize like why his shadows like not they don't quite have pixels to them but it is sort of a similar effect like this prickly um you know you get such a sense of volume to his work and now you can kind of imagine him tracing the shapes of these shadows from these camera obscura projections yeah yeah so the other thing that this makes me wonder about after seeing, you know, that while this was kept secret, this clearly was a, 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 a in another sense, a very prolific technique. You know, he demonstrates this being very common in Northern Europe, uh, and it probably was invented in Northern Europe. Yeah. But you see uh, plenty of Italians using this through the renaissance you see a lot of different regions in europe using it um you know for the next few hundred years so this brings up another question that i i kind of have to ask and wonder aloud is was this also what was so revolutionary about impressionism mm. where the impressionists you know, the 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 thing that I had always been taught was the Impressionists, while their work was mostly apolitical, the tr- a lot of them were leftists. I mean, but, yeah, that's fair. Uh, but but part of the, a lot of their work did not have overt political messages in it because they were honestly really sick of political artwork. <laughs> they were really yeah. they were really over it. They were they were tired of art that wanted to show you how to see the world right that wanted to have this precise replication of someone's vision of authority Mm. and they were really sick of that so 
you know, they do their, you know, nice paintings, but they're going out of the studio. They right. are painting and sketching outside. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying to imagine, you know, like that old guard of painters that have this tradition of the camera obscura and these carefully, um, you know, collected references that are then assembled in the studio uh, and all of this work to then see someone replicate light effects so efficiently just with color mm. in, you know, in these these studies of, you know, the exteriors of churches and uh, seascapes and forests and people, you know, a lot of those those things were themselves finished and touched up once the artists were back in the studios. Right. But yeah. You, you look at that work and you do realize so much of it had to be done plain air. You're like, was this also part of the revolution of painting in the 1800s? And were the impressionists even aware of this? Were these guys uh, to some extent, outsiders that had stumbled upon a technology that, like, almost sidelined the camera obscura as as a means of 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 the truth of light effects. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I and it's incredibly fascinating to think about because I I. I mean, I guess we can break it down and really start yeah. to wonder about it because on the one hand, I do think that it's, that it is in a sense reactionary and in that way, very contemporary to even how we see different art movements happening within the last, you know, hundred years, right? Like if you think about in the fifties and sixties, when you got these, you know, you literally got modernism taken to a whole new level of extremes and breaking out of these different boundaries and even into today with contemporary art. And we're often left wondering why in a sense, or like, wow, this mm -hmm. is so extreme. I thought, I thought art was painting. I thought it was this, you know, and, and, and you're seeing all <laughs> these different responses. And I wonder back then if that would have been in a similar vein where you have these traditions of painting and seeing these very focused precision mm -hmm. paintings and focused on optical yeah. illusions, quite literally. And and that was mm -hmm. the main way of creating things, at least in the Western world where we're focusing right now. And then when Impressionism comes along, it sort of takes that to the whole new level of no, art can be expression it can be seeing mm -hmm. things in the real world and expressing one's way of seeing it through painting as an act as a form mm -hmm. uh, using the same proportions the lessons of drawing and painting that are still always going to be a part of that tradition but changing it i i, I guess in constantly referencing music because i feel like it works with this you know, it's mm -hmm. it's like learning classical guitar and really getting it correct, right? All your finger picking, yeah. all of these notations, and then playing like jazz or something very <laughs> abstract like 
electronic music and ambient music and using the guitar as now a violin or, you know, putting reverb on it and just letting crazy sonic tones happen. It doesn't make one mm -hmm. better than the other. It's just a different way of exploring sound. Just like in this case, it would be a different way of exploring painting through textures, through light effects and through, you know, color relationships. But I, I, I also wonder if they didn't know that that was the way it was being done. I had, I, were, yeah, I guess that's the thing. I, were they accidentally brilliant? Right, right. <laughs> well, no, like, I mean, like, in the sense of, like, did they know about the, did, were they in the secret? Like, did they know that people were using mirrors to render these images out, right? And then, like, right. just figured it out? Or were they like, that sucks, I don't, which I, I personally don't think they were like this, where it's like, I don't want to do that. That's too difficult. I'm going to do my own thing. And then it ends up being brilliant and amazing, which I don't think that's really yeah. how any of this stuff goes. Personally, mm -hmm. I'm sure like one person did it just like we all do. But when you were saying though, about them leaving the studio and going mm -hmm. outside to paint versus being contained, I, I can't help though, but yeah. think about like when, even when we were quarantined and our first year for grad program and our professors were talking to us about this the studio as a concept and the laptop yeah. as a studio and i know uh -huh. we were both kind of like okay you know like this is yeah, yeah. i'm kind of tired <laughs> right now but we were very tired of unprecedented times li literally yes uh but there is kind of something to that where mm -hmm. you can have the mobile studio and be anywhere do anything and create art you know kim suja a um a contemporary korean artist does that a lot because she's a mm -hmm. nomadic artist as are a lot mm. of others but like she picks up her work and moves place to place to then create projects and and works that get installed and it's kind of amazing in that way and even like uh adrian villarojas does something similar but he works out of a laptop and does these incredible sculptures out of natural materials mm -hmm. and stuff but I kind of relate that to what the impressionists might have been doing, where you're taking this, the art form, the practice itself, moving it all around, yeah. actually working from life and expressing yourself in that way. And not, mm -hmm. not in a very like parsed down, like art is about the aura. It's about feeling. Cause it's obviously it's not, it's not, it's about drive. It's about, about power. power. Right. We stay humbly. We stay we, hungry. We, we devour. devour. <laughs> put in the work. Put in the... I That's this. What if that had been the secret? <laughs> it's I, I God, that's so, I, I can picture it right now. It's just like the rock, just chanting that to everybody or Vermeer's is drastically painting or frantically painting down these scenes. David Rockney. Oh, that's really good. David Rockney. Um... <laughs> oh, darn it. <laughs> oh, no, are you okay? I guess I just, I guess I just dropped my, my phone on the floor of the museum. Oh, Don't worry about oh, that. Oh, God. Um, but I, I think it, it is, I don't know. It's just, fa it's a fascinating thought because it also makes it a, a bit less daunting, as I said, where, yeah this, it ex it ex shows why we have different movements and why there's always going to be shifts in art making and reactions mm -hmm. to life around i mean you could mm -hmm. definitely historically make that connection to what the rise of the industrial powers and nationalism and this very need to represent things to yeah. paint a historical picture of how life is and then mm -hmm. the rejection of that into something more 
serene and peaceful and loose for lack of a yeah. better word like even uh turner's paintings being so loose and oh yeah and and that's pre in in uh, impressionist if i'm if i recall right that's not he he's like right before in a sense of kicking it yeah, off yeah yeah he's he's kind of occurring a little bit before um but i mean so much about turner's paintings were to 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 use an overused phrase ahead of their time yeah um you know you can it's been pointed out to both of us by professors that like you know you could take like the top two-thirds of a turner painting and you would have a contemporary painting yeah yes <laughs> like actually it's amazing it's so cool yeah yeah it is it is really incredible you know the other thing that's interesting where you suddenly see a contemporary thing in this art that is 600 years old um especially in a lot of northern european art where they are less interested in perspective the way that the italians were and, and particularly the florentines you see like th this is also part of hockney's argument uh for the use of the camera obscura you know is that there are all of these elements all throughout the painting that individually seem to be uh you know in focus and um and super detailed but they aren't all necessarily following the same um uh perspective and uh and focus that your eye would give something if you were to uh paint something he points out the way that you know th there even seems to be like lens uh the the effects of uh things going in and out of focus the way they would with a camera lens happening within at different points within a painting things right, that your right. eye does not do and what he sort of proposes is looking at these paintings as a collage that mm. you know these uh the the people and the and the objects that are particularly detailed are probably out in the sun uh copied down for proportions uh with the camera obscura and then compiled into the painting um and you know that's really where the skill of these artists come in and we really have to you know hand it off to them that they were able to handle paint in a way that yeah that demonstrated they understood light effects so one of the things that you realize about old northern european paintings is they have that feeling to them of contemporary paintings where you can tell that the subjects within the painting were painted from different photographic references and then kind of almost like a bad photoshop job dropped into a background or environment altogether that doesn't right. quite match them the perspective the lighting all of these things seem to not um be completely cohesive or consistent within the image mm. and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing it just is a thing that you can spot fairly easily uh in someone's artwork is oh these things came from separate photos that were then copied and cobbled together right and right. you can see that in 
you know, <laughs> you, you, you can see that in these, like, uh, Van Eyck paintings, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's incredible to see that same phenomenon show up, uh, you know, long before there would be any concept of a photo collage. Yeah, it is really fascinating in that way. Like, again, almost like we were were drawn to do that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, because I, 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 and I think, like, one of the things he was mentioning about even their, their way of using perspective in Northern Europe versus, like, the Italians was, you know, having the multiple points and bringing things mm-hmm. closer. And it makes, mm-hmm. it gives that distortion that also makes you feel like you're a part of the image in a way. That you're not, yeah. like, you are seeing everything in that, in this same perspective. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily be- being, you know, you're not looking at a at a replication of something, like, in the in our in linear perspective, as we see, where it's like you could kind of walk into the painting, but it's also a, a roadblock to it. Whereas in those, in the, you know, the Bruges and Ghent paintings or styles right. of, of North, or Flemish style, early Flemish styles it's a bit more inviting in that way. It's easier to sit with and, and be a part of. Um, but also, you know, he has drawings that use perspective like that in paintings, so it makes sense why he was partial to it. But I, I personally agreed that it is, mm-hmm. and I used to not, because again, you're, you're caught in this idea that paintings and art forms and mm-hmm. you know, drawings have to be accurate and cre- real, and, and they have to be an yeah. illusion and realistic and, and go beyond the photograph. And then it's like, you take that away for a minute and what's more successful, what's more interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I had an art teacher that talked to me a lot about why she didn't like realism, especially when I was really into it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like she would always describe this painting of a peach or it was a drawing, either one, because it it would have been Mm -hmm. with color pencil, but how incredibly rendered it was. It was like a photographic realistic, like completely to the T of everything being where it needed to be. And then moving beyond it rather quickly to something more interesting because uh-huh. you're left with just, it's a peach. And then you leave because that's it. That's all that it attracts you to. We Because <laughs> we see that all the time, yeah. in a sense, one can take the photograph and have that image already rendered out. Whereas it depends if you're interested in being, in seeing brush stroke and the labor or maybe no labor. And then the beauty of what's, of how you build mm-hmm. an image. Um, yeah. And I think that that's one of the major things that play here. What is the painting or what is the image we're looking at doing to invite us in? It's it's also what makes a good photograph or not, which gets into composition and choices, right? Mm-hmm. Versus just taking a picture of anything. Not everything's a good thing to look at. It could be weird <laughs> or blurry or frustrating, but it's even like if you, you know, when you get one of those, you're taking pictures with your camera and you get a blurry image, but it's actually really beautiful. And there's something really amazing about it, even though optically oh, yeah. it's not, it's not in focus. Like Uta Barth, the contemporary photographer does that well, all the time. It, it shows that something was, something was a moment, something yeah, happened. Exactly. You know? And it's not, um, it's not the, the, the overly composed, uh, you know, image that feels too carefully crafted. I mean, right. that's like, that's why I feel like, you know, there's so much street photography that's so on the nose, yeah. you know? Yeah. But 
ultimately Gary Winogrand's work holds up because it's so spontaneous and weird (laughs) and awkward angles and people are random people are blurry and some people aren't you know that's what feels so much more real about that kind of stuff is you know those those paintings that they go beyond the obvious of visual experience yeah you know is, is what we're you know getting to it's not so much that you, you know you can you can perfectly replicate something it's figuring out what is something new i can highlight and reveal about this thing and that's ultimately why we might have a problem with tracing the same way your professor might have a problem with this perfectly rendered peach you know it's not that right. it's completely devoid of skill but you know honestly perfectly rendering a peach isn't that much different from tracing it in fact you could have saved yourself some time and yeah. traced a photograph of it well that's what i'm you know? saying i mean I, I yeah so but you can't you can't <laughs> if you were to take a photograph of a peach and break it down into planes and brush strokes or mark making Mm. something that showed us how a mark could become a peach about a different way of looking at the peach that's when you go beyond tracing that's when it becomes art yeah dang that's a good way to put it i like that (laughs) that's that's Mm, you heard it here first, but I I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I and I th- I think I've talked to you about when I had a very not heated, but it wasn't a great argument in illustration class about um, digitally rendering paintings that look mm. like photographs. And mm-hmm. I because I had friends in my illustration class that were also taking a, another uh, digital illustration class, and I was like, I'm not taking that because I've been doing this for three years, and I don't need to learn yeah. a new way to do it. Um, and also, it was just because I didn't understand the need to to use digital techniques to then paint like oil paintings. I thought mm-hmm. that that, and I was this is my like turning point of being like interrogating why I use digital, why I was using digital methods of drawing, but yeah. One of the things I never really appreciated, and we were having this this argument in class about it, and you know my illustration mm-hmm. teacher got involved and kind of went against me, yeah. but it's fine. But but I know I won, and here's why: because <laughs> the thing I had the problem with was, and I and I pointed this out was, mm-hmm. why would you spend so much time doing this when you could just take a photo of it? Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, well, it's about the time and the skill and the craftsmanship. And it's like, I understand, but these are the same materials. It's pixels. It's the same material. It's not oil paint mm-hmm. representing what we see with light. It's not, and not to say right. that that determines the skill level, but it's almost like you're you're putting yourself through stress and, you know, so much time consumption to paint something that just is yeah. going to be that exact same photograph. And I, and I, I can see an interest in this and a reason to do it. And I don't think it's not warranted. I mean, this is also just subjective, but I do think there's something to be said about materiality at play here, because what is the difference between a photograph that's digital and a digital painting? That is the photograph. There's only a difference Mm -hmm. of just, you just created it with colors that were in the photo, right? Like 
because mm-hmm. you could do that. You could literally with, on on Photoshop, I could take a photo of something and I could match every single pixel like it was color by numbers and get it to be that. It is a it is an image created by squares. That is kind of fascinating and amazing, mm-hmm. but conceptually, if it's not interrogated, then what's the difference? That's the way. I, what, where's the art? What am I looking at besides an image? So I think mm-hmm. even here with like with the projections or whether we're talking about impressionism and, and pushing past the idea of the image as art itself, it's not only in labor, it's also in how it's being conducted, you know, how it's going about it. What is the, what is the reasons for these? And in the Northern European styles, you, you see that with mm-hmm. the, the use of perspective, with understanding how to, to have interior spaces look and be read as dramatic mm-hmm. and, the tool to do that doesn't make it less so, you know? Yeah. No, I, that's, uh, no, that's, that's, that's a really wonderful, uh, way to kind of look at it. And it's, uh, and, and that's, a. yeah, it, it's interesting <laughs> having that perspective too, especially, you know, since you have so much more digital art experience than me. And you have the <laughs> illustration background. Yeah, um, it, it's a it's a valid like, I guess because I was always interested in paleontology illustration. There's never the option no. for the photograph. No, <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> One it's hopes. an interesting challenge. It's yeah. an interesting challenge all to itself. You that's know? true. No, I mean, I that's the thing. I was I didn't even think of that. I mean, that's because like for me, I was really interested in like you know, illustrating what isn't real or like using more simplified or, or, mm-hmm. you know, cartoon styles for comic books and things. And that's what I liked and was interested yeah. in. And, but I love that expressive quality you get out of designs rather than just fully rendered images. It doesn't mean that they're not good. I mean, those paintings my friends were making were amazing and the skill mm-hmm. and the time was insane. But I, if I asked them now, it probably was like, why the heck did I spend hours doing this for a class? <laughs> like, why? And I mean, you learn something out of that, right? You learn something mm-hmm. out of out of making things. It's how you learn how to draw and paint. But mm-hmm. it doesn't determine a good drawing, and it doesn't determine a good painting because you spent a lot of time on it and got the details really clean. I mean, oftentimes I'm not interested in mm-hmm. in something rendered so precisely. It's what is the twist? It's 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 um mm, Gerhardt. Yeah, yeah. It's Gerhardt Richter's Betty, whereas his daughter who's not even mm-hmm. facing us and there's that moment yeah. of waiting and anticipation it's it's vermeer chandelier that's so mystifyingly rendered and that you're like even if you were <laughs> to trace it which he did that doesn't get that doesn't excuse how hard it is to then get in and make that interesting and really yeah. draw us into the composition of the painting mm-hmm. right yeah yeah that's uh that's where the skill is it's yeah uh you know uh that's uh that that really does demonstrate that throughout time you know because there has been that ability to uh you know make the image if if this is really demonstrating that that Mm. was not the ultimate challenge you know just getting the proportions and the image itself right it does show that ultimately artists that left behind impactful work also you know 
made things that that elevated their subjects beyond just what they objectively were. Mm, right, right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. This this has been this has been a really uh a really cool conversation to yeah. have. I mean, I think you know it it's it seems like a, a part that was there but wasn't there for a lot of our art education and I'm really glad that we uh we discovered uh yeah this we discovered the secret. Yeah. Is this what the secret means when they when you go to the bookstores and they start? You know, to I never it? read that book. I, I never stayed away either. from it when I worked at the used book. Isn't it just like the power of positive thinking or whatever? And then it just like doesn't it doesn't elaborate any further. Um, yeah, it's a lot of. From what I understand, it's a lot of writing down the things you want. And oh God, the mem- what is it the 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 mood boards or whatever or the mm, yeah, yeah yeah. I mean, I guess I guess yeah I. If David Hockney had told us to start a mood board, you know, maybe after I'd seen the whole documentary, because he'd convinced me of Camera Obscura. So yeah. who knows what he, if, if he could have, you know, started getting into an MLM after that, maybe <laughs> right. I would have gotten into it, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I'm like, I'm looking for a mirror now. Like, I genuinely want to, like, a curved mirror to try these projections oh, yeah. in my room, like, with the sunlight mm-hmm. hitting. I am very curious about making a project around this. It is. Oh, yeah. It's so fascinating. But uh, yeah, I'm so thank you for sending this to me, by the way. I'm, I might as well give credit where credit's due because it was so fascinating when I skimmed through and having and actually sitting down to watch it. I was so engaged. I feel like I haven't been engaged in a piece and just something for a while because I'm just always yeah. doing other things. But it uh-huh. was just, I really want to make this more present in art history and art education i feel like because it so is really it's, important it's, it's really something i'd like i hope i can work into a class same uh, yeah in the future i yeah i i've been thinking a lot about documentaries recently because uh one of the last times i i got to hang out hang out with people we were talking a lot about Werner herzog ah, um and yeah. i was i was trying to you know because uh, David Hockney is very uh, charming through the whole thing and very oh, yeah. British, as we said earlier. Yeah. But I was trying to imagine this documentary if it was <laughs> oh, <laughs> Werner Herzog God. discovering, discovering, uh, you know, uh, the the camera obscura. I do not see the the beauty. Instead, I see the vacuous emptiness of the trappings of these <laughs> rich individuals, oh, long gone. Their their images, all that remain, they're well squandered. <laughs> I can picture it. I see it perfectly. Like, it's mm-hmm, just that mm-hmm. very serious German accent. I can't do the Werner Hart mm-hmm. song, though. It's too deep for my voice. Yeah, it's, uh... I wait, isn't he in The Mandalorian? Yes! I don't get what he... <laughs> just, cause it, just for the voice, right? Well, no, he's like a character. He just shows up. He's like an imperial agent who's trying to mm. get Baby Yoda because of their power, mm. and it gets really dark really fast. But that's where the whole, like, I would like to see the baby. He's also in Rick and Morty, which I think is weird. Yeah, who is he in Rick and Morty? He was, remember where, like, Jerry has to, like, donate his penis or whatever to, like, that, to that oh, person's he's heart? Oh, Scrimply Pibbles. <laughs> yeah, Scrimply and then he's like, Pibbles. Scrimply Pibbles is one of the best <laughs> mans ever to exist upon us. And he gets, like, really <laughs> metaphysical about it, and it's just, oh I my god. I wealth among the humans. <laughs> do you ever, uh, yeah. do you ever watch Agira, The Wrath of God? Have you ever seen that movie? No. Oh, really? No. Oh, no, Sam. 
Oh man, you should watch it. It's crazy. I that's like one of the yeah. first. Uh, that's directed been, by him. It's. I I've been really wanting to rewatch the uh, the one about the grizzly bears. Oh, Grizz, grizzly man, right? Grizzly man. Yeah, yeah. I never yeah. saw that one. Yeah, yeah, I that might be the only mm. that and like some people have shown me the some clips of some other ones that are like mm. hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, like in. Did you see his um? Oh, he did one recently. The penguin documentary. I didn't see the penguin documentary. I saw the um, I saw the the the. It's like oh, it's the one about the prison. It's really good. That that is mm. good. But Agira the Wrath of God is not a documentary. It's like his first. It's like a feature, and it's crazy. Oh. And like he's working with um Klaus something, and the dude's like he's insane this like insane actor that was like fighting with mm-hmm. half of them on set and they had to overdub stuff it is like a crazy story of how it was filmed mm-hmm. and it's a very it's a very famous movie but yeah it's mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. also they're they're spanish conquistadors speaking german so uh-huh. that's fun i think okay okay anyway worth it's, checking it's out. like it's like it's like chernobyl when where they're where they're all speaking <laughs> with british accents <laughs> Comrade Gregory, we have to go and see how we are going to stop this. This is the way that our fathers mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What was the scum? Where proper working class Russians? Yeah. yeah. What proper Soviets? <laughs> oh, oh my God! God. Perfect perfection. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess uh, it, Werner Herzog, is, his character in, in Star Wars is clearly from the German-speaking, the Bavarian-speaking <laughs> part of the Yeah, universe. the Bavarian planet. <laughs> yes, yes. And then also uh, John Giancarlo Esposito, who plays, um, well, he was, he's Gus in Breaking Bad, shows up as like the, one of the generals, which is amazing. So, oh, wow. And he's the bad guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I had a coworker that would complain a lot about Gus's accent in Breaking Bad. Why? Well, my coworker was from where was he from? I believe he was from Nicaragua originally. Okay. But he really didn't like Gus's accent. Uh, uh-huh. but from what I've been able to tell, like from what I've heard other people say, Gus that 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 actor, uh, what what's his name? Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at least that that he does a pretty good mix of the that because uh, his character in Breaking Bad is like originally from Chile, but he goes yeah. through Mexico, so he's got yes. like a mix American Mexican Chilean accent, and maybe that's just what was throwing my old coworker off. I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. He's got that very interesting way of of speaking. That's just. It's very consistent through everything. Like I'm playing Far Cry Six, and he's just playing Gus essentially, mm-hmm. but like Cuban oh. knockoff Cuban because oh. they're not they're Yaren, <laughs> they're not Cuban. So like members of Yaren, this <laughs> is president at times. No more. Like it's just this very like like it's just so it's so great. Like just the way he carries himself in anything, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And they they know what they're doing. They know who this is. Like I can imagine him mm-hmm. just being like. Gentlemen, please have some chicken on us, <laughs> and welcome to Los Poyos Hermanos. It's perfect. <laughs> top, top. Uh, ah, love that show. Anyways, this is Anyways, before we delve more into pop culture. Yeah. Check them out. Uh, 
yes, this has been this has been a fun conversation, a nice uh a nice little uh break yeah. form zip zap zoppin uh between uh some bigger projects. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, our last few weeks on um, you know, uh some uh little heavier topics and then we kind of get to uh loosen up for sure but next week yes. we have a very special guest uh definitely tune in for that one super definitely excited come back to the uncanny county museum um in the meantime joe uh what can people check out for you uh not too much at the moment the uh our show ephemeral existence with teleportal i at this point would have been over, but you can still check it out online at teleportal.gallery as well as at teleportal.gallery on Instagram. I mm -hmm. hopefully will have news about a exhibition that I'm a part of in Amherst, Massachusetts that I'm really looking forward to um, and have to finish. So that's kind of, that's always fun. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's pretty much it for now. How about you, Zan? Right on. Um, I will have a piece um, that should be up by now at the uh, Studio Public House for their In Bloom show. So if you're in St. Petersburg, you want to go see some flower art made by a bunch of cool local artists, uh, you know, support uh, Studio Public House, of course. Uh, you can go by, check out my work there. Uh, as always, just kind of getting ready for my thesis show in may should have more information about that at some point um and that is all for now if nice, you would like nice. to yeah find the museum after hours we are at uncanny museum on twitter and at uncanny county museum on instagram if you want to find me i'm at xanasaurus on instagram and i'm at Josemino art on instagram and from the uncanny county museum I have been Zan Peters. And I have been Josephine. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's good.